to two groups in this country, patriots and traitors. No middle ground. Disinformation is not simply lies or falsifications. It is the art of having your enemies say what you want them to say. Who would engage in espionage on Twitter? Who would be that stupid? Not me. It's very important to educate people about these techniques. They have the Great Reset, we have the Great Awakening. Another type of active measure is the agent of influence. And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Because Which I am. You know, it's very hard for journalists to accept that this has been going on. What do you get your opinions from? TV? Disinformation is actually a deliberately distorted or manipulated information that is uh, leaked into the communication system of the opponent with the expectation that it would be accepted as genuine information and uh, influence either the decision-making process, for example, or to influence or manipulate public opinion. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. Some questions remain unanswered. What is the effect of all these active measures? I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. And I'm Jay McKenzie. On this episode of the Did Nothing Wrong pod, we're joined by journalist Robert Downen of the Texas Tribune. Robert is a reporter covering democracy and the threats to it, including extremism, disinformation, and conspiracies. Before joining the Tribune in 2022, he worked for five years at the Houston Chronicle. As a Hearst Media Fellow, he developed what would become Abuse of Faith, a landmark investigation into child sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention that prompted a Department of Justice investigation. Before coming to Texas, Robert was a business reporter in New York's capital region and the managing editor of six newspapers in his home state of Illinois. We're thrilled to have him with us today. Robert, thank you so much for being here and welcome to Did Nothing Wrong. Thank you for having me. So what can you tell us about yourself and what led you to become an investigative journalist? So I, I kind of bopped around the Midwest and New York before landing in Houston in 2017 and kind of just through, you know, stroke of luck, stumbled upon some court records that led to this bigger investigation into sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. And that kind of, you know, was really my first, you know, intro to investigative reporting and has kind of consumed my life pretty much from 2017 up until about September of last year when I took this job at the Texas Tribune covering democracy, which I'm happy to explain to you what that means once I figure it out. But from what I understand, <laughs> it basically just means uh, disinformation, extremism, uh, conspiracy theories. So really uh, anything that poses a, a substantial threat to democracy kind of falls under my umbrella, which you can imagine means I'm a pretty busy man these days. <laughs> Absolutely. No, no slack in that beat these days. Definitely. It's every day, all day. So you've covered quite a bit of the ongoing impeachment proceedings against Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, including how a company called Influenceable is using social media influencers to support Paxton through these proceedings. His case really sticks out because he's a Republican in a red state and he's being impeached by his own party. So it's just not something most people are used to seeing. And can you tell us what led to this impeachment trial? How did we get here? Well, we have to go back to, uh, depending on who you ask, either 2015 when Paxton was first indicted on securities fraud or more recently when he 
began to allegedly have an extramarital affair. Uh, side note, Paxton's wife, Angela, is also a state senator. Um, if you're looking for a real, a lot of juicy storylines in this one, there, there are plenty. <laughs> but to kind of summarize the allegations and the timeline here, um, and I do want to say a lot of this is alleged, but we are starting to see more, you know, just this morning, there were 4,000 pages of documents dropped on us that certainly seem to corroborate some of the allegations um, ahead of his, his impeachment trial on September 5th. But basically, the kind of timeline is that Paxton was having an extramarital affair. Um, somewhere around 2020-ish, he gets involved with this man named Nate Paul, who is a was at the time a, a kind of real estate developer in the Austin area, like young, you know, I think pre-30s when he kind of had this meteoric rise to fame and all of a sudden his businesses start to just go under he's facing a litany of lawsuits and so uh an fbi investigation into his properties and whether or not he was um you know fraudulently securing business loans um spoiler alert in june of this year he was arrested on those very charges but we will get to that so <laughs> what the allegations about paxton are is that basically he was using the attorney general's office to interfere with fbi investigations into nate paul to provide nate paul uber sensitive materials about uh you know raids on his offices to interfere with lawsuits with a nonprofit that was suing nate paul for non-payment and other things and a bunch of other things. And as we are told, in return, Nate Paul employed Paxton's, uh, the woman with whom he was allegedly having an affair. She was living in San Antonio for a while, and he apparently gave her a job in Austin so that he would be closer, she would be closer to him. He apparently or allegedly remodeled Paxton's kitchen to the tune of anywhere from twenty dollars to $122,000. And um, we are, it is now coming out that they had shared a, a shared Uber account that they were using to commu- uh, to meet with each other and Paxton with the woman he was having an affair with, burner phones, fake email addresses. But that <laughs> leaves out an important part. So as all of this was going on, top deputies in the attorney general's office were sitting there being like, we have warned Ken Paxton so many times that this man is completely crooked that like this is what has been coming out in recent months and so they finally in i think 29 or like think i think 2021 came forward to the fbi and accused paxton of bribery paxton they immediately fired them so all of a sudden they retained whistleblower status they file a lawsuit saying that they were improperly fired paxton settles it and then comes to the Texas legislature in January and says, hey, I need $3.3 million in a budget item to, to pay for these whistle this whistleblower lawsuit. And that was kind of the final straw for the legislature who were like, listen, you know, I don't know exactly what their train of thought was, but you've now included all of us into a potential concealment of potential wrongdoing. And also there is an active law enforcement investigation undergirding all of this. So like, no, thank you. We're going to investigate all of this stuff. And that's kind of what got us to May when he was impeached. And since then, it's just been kind of a daily barrage of new information about this case so that is the shortest version possible by the way (laughs) wow yes so speaking of how this got played out since may 
You have a great new piece up at the Texas Tribune titled Gen Z Influencers Quietly Recruited by a Company with Deep GOP Ties Rally to Impeached Ken Paxton's Aid. It's a big one. Got a lot of attention and it connected a lot of dots. It involved a new company called Influenceable, which, as you wrote, quote, recruits young conservative social media figures to promote political campaigns and films without disclosing their business relationship. What can you tell us about this company and their recent activity? So this this actually kind of, you know, started very organically as a story. In the last few months, I started noticing just on a lot of like young conservative social media profiles, I follow like a lot of very similar posts about um, a handful of things. One, the day before Paxson's impeachment trial, like all of these figures who had never really been involved in Texas politics were just suddenly like forcefully <laughs> condemning the impeachment, all with the same hashtags, all with the same like like talking points too. And then there was a few other ones. There was in the lead up to the Sound of Freedom release, the the Jim Caviezel QAnon adjacent movie, um, there were a bunch of them who just randomly flooded social media with, you know, same, same, same talking points again, same hashtags, you know, calls to action, same studio quality movies as one another before the movie had even come out somehow. And so... I kind of like had that on my radar. And then in 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 the beginning of July, a source of mine kind of pinged me. It's like, hey, they had this, there was this meeting in Fort Worth with all of these really well-known influencers. And it was kind of the soft launch of this new company called Influenceable. And so I was able to kind of find a, fo- a group photo because the, the nice thing about influencers is they can't not post photos about it on social media. Right. And just kind of, I was like, okay, so now we have a group of like a dozen or, you know, maybe a little bit more people that we know for sure were at this event. Let's just let them post for another month. I'm going to keep tabs on all of their social media profiles and kind of just see where the consistencies are. And so, you know, in, in July alone, I think something like they posted something like 50 plus times about the uh, Sound of Freedom movie. <laughs> and a lot of times, you know, they were trying to tie it to conspiracy theories about, you know, Jeffrey Epstein, globalists, all these kind of, you know, conspiracy theories. I'm sure everyone who listens to this pod is well aware of. And then as I kept monitoring it, I noticed that um, one of the young adults had posted um, a photo that included Tim Dunn, who is a West Texas oil tycoon who's given tens of millions of dollars to far right movements in Texas and the nation, but really in Texas. He was in one of the photos, as was Brad Parscale, who uh, ran Trump's digital strategy in 2016. And later ran his uh, uh, campaign in 2020 until he had to leave for uh, domestic violence allegations. And so it turns out Parscale's new company, this this company called Campaign Nucleus, is one of the partners of this company called Influenceable. And so I started kind of looking through campaign finance records, found out that one of the political action committees that uh, Dunn finances had given $18,000 to this company and basically just started pulling on all these strings showing how, you know, a handful of far right mega donors um, and their kind of political arms in coordination with with Parscale were really recruiting Gen Z conservatives to promote pro Ken Paxton talking points, um, sound of freedom, you know, all of these different things, a kind of important part of that too, is that Tim Dunn, this far right billionaire I'm talking about, he is one of two people who up until last month, Ken Paxton had received more money from them than any other state politician in Texas. And, you know, we're talking, including loans, something like $4.85 million. 
and really have been the driving force in many ways amongst uh, behind his lurch to the to the right as attorney general since 2015. And his groups have always been his his biggest promoters, defenders, cheerleaders. And so it was not surprising, but certainly newsworthy to me that one of the PACs was paying this company called Influenceable to basically flood the zone with pro PACs and talking points up until as recently um, as I believe July 26, they were still putting uh, calls on it. So, Wow. When you talk about the promotion of these kind of QAnon adjacent talking points and Sound of Freedom, were they sort of dog whistling for this and, and accusing Democrats of not doing anything? Was this like a political attack or were they more just kind of promoting the movie or promoting these these views? Was it a bit of both? So it was it was a mixed bag. I think after um, there was definitely a, a, a change in the tone of the messaging after, you know, the movie came out and there was a lot of like outcry or, you know, criticism of it for its QAnon ties. A lot of, you know, people coming out and saying, oh, why are liberals so concerned about this movie? Is there something going on there? Kind of just, you know, making that insinuation that, of course, liberal, you know, liberals are in with the cabal and Hollywood elites. And then there was also a some of them who tried to tie those threads together with also democratic in immigration policy. So saying like, you know, this this crisis is being aided by the media with help from democratic open border policies. So like you really started to see, and this is something that I've really noticed a lot, as I'm sure you guys have too, with regards to some of these QAnon conspiracies or like, you know, trafficking conspiracies is that there has been a, a, a an increasing emphasis on the border aspect of this. I mean, I right. mean, not that's necessarily new. I mean, Tim Ballard testified about that in front of uh, Congress, I believe, with, as part of Operation Underground Railroad. But you are starting to really see a like now it, it almost seems like now that they've accepted the underlying conspiracy theory as fact, there's no need to even su- like talk about it anymore. They can just move on to the next thing. And I think that that's deeply concerning. So, mm, Yeah, definitely. And especially when you've got a sizable chunk of the folks that are running for the GOP nomination for president talking about how on some level they would vote to support going into Mexico with some level of armed force. That gets to be a very, very scary combination when you can keep hyping border, 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 border makes it easier to convince people that what you want to do is a good idea on this, which it most definitely isn't. Yeah. And I mean, and also, you know, again, being in Texas, the, the, to say the temperature about over, over the border is simmering would be the understatement of the year. I mean, it just really further raises the temperature. It, it plays into all these broader conspiracy theories, you know, great replacement theory. It, it really does kind of hit all of the notes um, in a really, really concerning way. I did want to point out, it's just, it's crazy because it's like, this is kind of a promotion of a movie but it's also kind of a political ad but it's not even specifically going after one candidate but like you said that their audience does seem to get it they they know that we on the right care about child trafficking and we care about the border and the left doesn't so they don't even have to say it anymore but it's something that we think about and and how well the we're fighting you know the culture wars we don't fight the class war. And I I wonder if that's your sense with these Texas oil tycoons who would who would fund a group like this. Do you think that's part of the motivation here? 
I mean, I think, you know, I, I, it's, it's always difficult when it comes to someone like Tim Dunn or Ferris Wilkes, the Wilkes brothers really, but because they just have like, they fund, it is staggering how much, like how far they make their money go in Texas and also just how much of the, there is like, like they have, it's like a Russian nesting doll of of just hacks <laughs> and and different groups and nonprofits, um, including like as I as I as I reported this week, you know, one of the they they just uh, started a foundation in partnership with Kyle Rittenhouse, um, uh. and really their whole kind of strategy for the past twenty years has been to pull Texas, specifically the legislature, further to the right by constantly by creating this kind of ecosystem of nonprofits, uh, you know, media organizations, grassroots groups, etc, that are constantly attacking lawmakers from the right. So like, they have a they have like annual um, rankings that they put out about like, who is the most conservative, yada, yada, yada. There have for years been lawmakers who like, they are terrified of like dropping significantly on those. I mean, literally, the name of one of their websites is Texas scorecard. And that's what they do. And the other thing that they do is because they have so much money, they have no problem financing primary candidates against their own. Like if you kind of go out of lockstep with them, they will absolutely see, you know, they will sink money into a a primary challenger, not because they think that they can unseat you, but because their whole point is to move the Overton window on where the Texas GOP is. And so like, you know, $500,000 to these guys is absolutely nothing. And it's worth it to them to just kind of, you know, give it to some candidate who's going to go on the on the campaign trail. Take, for example, Shelly Luther was one of their candidates in 2022. She lost. Um, but, you know, she gained some national headlines because she was talking about how she was a teacher and she wishes, you know, kids could bully trans kids. And like, these are the type of candidates that they're bankrolling, like the people who don't stand a chance or like, I shouldn't say don't because of, you know, I shouldn't rule any of them out, but like their whole kind of point is to, again, move what is acceptable in, in Texas and national political discourse on the right. And they've been really successful in that. So again, getting back to your broader question about like what their aim is with, you know, being, being involved with something like influenceable, like, you know, $18,000, which is what, uh, Defend Texas Liberty Pack that one of their packs gave to um, I should say it's influenceable without an E. We're we're pretty pretty confident it's the same company, but I never want to say certainly. But like eighteen thousand dollars to them, that is literally nothing. And so if 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 it can just move the needle just a tiny bit on you know what a handful of people you know if it can get ten to fifteen people to be more engaged in the Paxton trial, that's probably worth it to them. If it can get you know, I, I I don't know if they are personally finding financing the Sound of Freedom stuff, um, but again, like this this company really just does fit into their broader mo, which is just perpetually kind of moving things for you know pushing further to, from the right. So, well, that's one thing I, I noticed that you mentioned in your reporting is that the defenses of Paxton really kept going back to everyone who's after him is either a Democrat or a rhino. And for these people, a lot of it is what's the difference? You know, the establishment is trying to destroy this this great right wing star. Yeah, I mean, that's that's always been their MO is like anybody who is not lockstep in with, with them is is a rhino, like literally Texas Scorecard, the, the website that I just mentioned, they just released a three part documentary yesterday called The Heist. That's basically talking about how like the Texas legislature is secretly under control of Democrats. 
I'm not familiar. I'm, I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with uh, Texas politics, but I would not say it's a particularly democratic stronghold. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but again, that coupled with these this broader conspiratorial thinking that we've seen on the right in particular over the last few years about like the deep state and, you know, all this stuff, it really does. You know, you're seeing the exact same rhetoric in response to the Paxton stuff as you are, as we did about Trump. You know, it's a witch hunt this, witch hunt that, kangaroo court, you know, all of this stuff to the point where it does make me wonder, you know, there was 4,000 ish pages of exhibits, exhaustive exhibits dropped today. And I think that there's a decent number of people who this, it, it will not change even one iota their perception of what, what this impeachment trial is about. So it's interesting that you mentioned that they have been pushing this messaging of the Democrats have sort of secretly taken everything over. And you mentioned in the story that there's a significant amount of connection between influenceable and uh, for instance, an anti-woke social media company called Today is America Incorporated, whose chief financial officer has worked for Marjorie Taylor Greene and George Santos. And he's also the leader of a PAC supporting RFK Jr., who's also a Democrat. And this has us a little bit confused. Can you help us sort of make sense of some of these connections? <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that there's there are so many kind of other other little rabbit holes in this story that I it's hard for me to keep them all set tra- straight sometimes. But yeah, so um, Jason Bowles is the leader is the treasurer for Heal the Divide Pack. Um, and he is also him, him and Bo Hines, who ran for Congress in North Carolina, are CFO and CEO of Today's America or one of the Today's America groups that is kind of. You know, it was founded in 2019 by these two North Carolina brothers who went on to found Influenceable and kind of their whole MO has been just to like they just constantly posting on social media, like just constant anti LGBTQ plus memes, you know, just kind of a, a slew of memes and stuff that often break out of their social media channels and into broader worlds. They were also behind the Republican Hype House account on TikTok, which had, I think, like 1.2 million followers right. before it got banned in 2020 for election misinformation. But anyway, so that company is directly tied to Influenceable. And as as you said, Jason Bowles is tied to RFK Jr., and Influenceable has apparently been putting out calls to influencers to promote this new anti-vaccine film that, lo and behold, happens to feature prominently RFK Jr. And so, again, it seems like another example of, you know, as you said, RFK Jr. ostensibly a Democrat, and yet it seems right. frequently that his biggest donors and supporters are coming from the opposite side of the political spectrum. So so weird. Yeah. Can't imagine why they were floating the possibility of him being Trump's VP. And some still are because there's not a huge divide there. But it is interesting to see. Now we're getting to see the money that is actually helping his campaign. And it just keeps being Trump guys, DeSantis guys, Republican donors. But part of his appeal is content. It is the media, even if it's just to debunk him and to point out how absurd some of the things he says that can be a benefit for them. And so he just doesn't quite go away. And it seems like there's a lot of people intent on making sure that he remains part of the conversation. Yeah. And I mean, it's a win-win for, you know, a lot of people with him because it launders, I think, uh, some very concerning conspiracy theories about anti-vaccines and stuff like that through mainstream media in a way that I think uh, is is, um, influencing more people than we probably think so. Yeah, there's a list of potential long-term consequences mm-hmm. that we 
don't know yet, but we can't imagine it's going to be good. It's just a matter of how bad. So, What really makes this story important to me is the gray, kind of mostly unregulated area that these people are operating in. It's like you've got social media influencers that are pushing a message without disclosing where that message came from and who's paying them to push that message. And that may look real, but it doesn't mean that it is. And this may sound like a terribly naive question, but how are they getting away with this? Um, you know, with respect to the film stuff, I mean, there's really, I, you know, the FTC kind of says that influencers are supposed to disclose if they have any material ties to a product that they're promoting, but right. like, it doesn't necessarily seem like something that is going to rise to the level of sparking investigation or fines. But on the political side, I mean, you know, in Texas and both nationally, like our, our campaign finance and our political advertising rules are still really rooted in McCain fine gold of 2002. So like, you know, 21 years later, we are still dealing with the same rules that apply to, you know, if I pay you to print something in your newspaper, or if I pay you to air something on my t on TV for me, like those are extremely outdated rules. And even if those were updated rules, kind of what they're talking about with respect to the Paxton thing is, is particularly interesting because, you know, in Texas, there are some rules on like when you can donate to candidates, you, you know, there are moratoriums before and after the legislature meets um, and some other, you know, disclosure requirements. But when it comes to an impeachment proceeding, like there's really not anything in there. And so it has given them kind of free reign to, to, um, you know, talk about things that, you know, maybe would potentially need to be disclosed if it was, you know, ad express advocacy for a specific candidate or ballot measure. But like, keep like this, this is kind of a weird, you know, thing that's not addressed in at least Texas law. And so I know, you know, talking to at least one Republican lawmaker that I've, you know, for this story, he was kind of saying, you know, when we meet next, you know, in 2025, we are going to, you know, I would like to see some changes to this, you know, granted 2025 is a long ways away. But I, I think that that, you know, one of the things that I, my story, I think, kind of really made clear to people is that, you know, a lot of our disclosure rules really are <laughs> very outdated. And especially when you consider not just the time length that it's been since we updated them, but just how quickly um, political messaging and digital spaces have evolved it, you know, and continue to evolve. So. Yeah. And you look at in the piece, the, the ever present problem that this isn't just Texas, this is everywhere. And dark money is just a scourge at this point. You talk about citizens United and how it opened the floodgates in terms of this political spending. Do you think people at some point are all going to come together and say just enough? You know, I have no idea. Um, I think, you know, I, I'm not, I, I'm obviously not a legal expert, but I think, unfortunately, it seems that the courts are also, you know, much more inclined to side with the, you know, way things are currently Citizens United, obviously being a big part of that. Um, and again, one of the other things that I think is, you know, didn't really make it into the story, but you know, one of the, the, the underlying arguments in Citizens United was about a documentary. And that is something that we're increasingly seeing is, you know, people financing documentaries um, with, with an explicit political agenda and pushing that, you know, we saw that with 2000 mules. We see that with right. um, this, this movie remedy that's promoting RFK jr. This documentary by Texas scorecard about Paxton, like that's kind of increasingly been, been an understated mode in which these groups are getting out their message, not just on social media, but, you know, I follow a lot of like County level Republican parties 
And they are constantly having, you know, weekly showings of a documentary, um, whether it's it's the uh, Epoch Times new documentary about uh-huh. China or uh, Plandemic or like all of these different things. I don't know. Maybe Plandemic. I don't know. I haven't seen that one. But add in the fact that, you know, Elon Musk's Twitter now has unlimited video length um, for some people. And like it's it's kind of a perfect recipe for people to interact with content that they probably never would have before and in ways that they don't really understand that this is overt political messaging that just doesn't have to be disclosed because of Citizens United and other court decisions. So definitely even even just yesterday talking about documentaries, we found out that Rudy Giuliani is being sued for actually taking nine hundred thousand dollars to film a documentary he never made. So it's it's also all this extra political messaging and it's it's additional cases of alleged fraud. So, yes, it is uh, one way or the other. Another vehicle for them to move money back and forth between one group and another. I mean, films who can track it. Well, and the other thing is, I mean, and again, it's 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 a it's a rare type of political advertising that you get return on investment. Like, I mean, look at Sound of Freedom. You know, that's not an explicitly political movie, but like. They've probably, I don't know what they their budget versus return was on that movie, but they could probably make another 10 sound, Sounds of Freedom if they wanted with that money. You saw the same thing with 2000 Mules, which I wrote a little bit about too. Like it, like the top, top, you know, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and Ken Paxson were both promoting 2000 Mules. You're seeing these kind of documentaries, they kind of gamify political engagement in a way. Like, you know, people feel like they're, if, if they, if they, are going to see sound of freedom they are personally helping with this you know defeat the cabal and save children in the same way that like you know there's a, there's a certain element of like pass this along and you've done your part to combat whatever the issue is that is at the heart of the documentary and i think that that is really something that probably hasn't been explored enough because that is really become a premier kind of form of messaging for a lot of uh, well-financed groups on the right so yeah and there's there's so much deniability around it and and that's part of the reason it's so attractive to these people is because they can promote these things and spread these messages, but there's not really any consequences if you're just the middleman, if you're the go-between. And that that brings me to another topic, switching gears a little bit. You wrote about the, the mass shooter in Allen, Texas, who professed neo-Nazi beliefs online. He also apparently was a viewer of Tim Pool's show. He had liked some of those. And, and Tim Pool, of course, said, I, I don't know anything about this. I don't know anything um, about this man. He doesn't agree with me. He doesn't like me. And there's that deniability there. But another way that they really knocked down this story is they said, well, it, even if this guy was the shooter and he's Hispanic and everyone's going around saying, oh, he's a he's a neo-Nazi and he, Hispanic people can't be neo-Nazis. But you wrote about how there's, ample evidence that extremist views are on the rise among communities of color, despite often being couched in ideologies that perpetuate uh, false notions of racial or ethnic hierarchy. So I, I do understand how people have a little difficulty with this concept, because I think just, I think it's very American way of looking at the world that it the only people that were Nazis were white. And for us, we see the images of the blonde haired, blue eyed children. And that to us growing up was the only way you could be a Nazi was to be that. So could you just explain how a Hispanic man could identify as a neo-Nazi? Yeah, I mean, 
Those few days were among the most frustrating days I've had on the internet in a while, which is really saying something. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, Hispanic does not in and of itself imply, you know, being a person of color. But, um, and I think that is important. A thing that I think people don't understand is that, you know, white supremacy is stacked on all of lower rungs of, of, of supremacy. You know, the, the, it, it is creating hierarchies of, of human beings, both by race, by physical ability, by all of these different things. And so being, you know, that type of hierarchy can be attractive to people who want to blame somebody else for their problems. You know, as long as you are higher on the hierarchy than somebody else, it gives you in many ways a justification to, to for your problems, for your hatred, for your violence, potentially. And, you know, we saw that with the Allen shooter. We see that, you know, there, there's there's a reason that I think, you know, so much we're seeing. It, I think it helps explain some of the reasons why, you know, incel ideology and the men's rights movement are so inextricably tied to broader white supremacist movements that kind of do have these stacked hierarchies that give people a reason to, you know, a, a, a way to explain away why their life, you know, why they're unhappy with their life by blaming, you know, people that are quote unquote lower on the rung. Um, oftentimes, those people being Jews, um, you know, it's also really interesting. And, and I think you guys may have touched on this on on previous shows too is that we are really seeing specifically when it comes to anti-semitism um a real infusion of communities of color with um groups like the groypers obviously nick fuentes has some you know mexican heritage but like with people who would describe themselves as white supremacists linking up with communities of color their shared ideology being anti-semitism and i think that that is really um, you know, talking to experts and reading a lot about this, especially after the Allen shooter is, is really an indication of something becoming increasingly mainstream. Not that it wasn't mainstream before. I mean, you know, in that piece, I mentioned that um, the Daily Stormer has been publishing in Spanish since like 2016 or something because mm-hmm. they see opportunities there. But like, that's another one of the things that's been really interesting about I, I've been increasingly covering, you know, Gen Z influences, obviously, from this story and the amount of just naked anti-Semitism, the amount of real vitriolic anti-Semitism that is no longer just confined to spaces that we would generally view as white supremacist spaces um, is deeply concerning. And it, and it is something that is jumping across, you know, ethnic and racial lines in, in a very alarming way. Yeah, it's it's been completely normalized in their in their very online spaces, whether it's it's watching Nick Fuentes or in their private chat rooms. It has just become so extreme. And and because it's all been couched in this, it's it's just a joke, bro. It's just we don't really mean Mm -hmm. it. They have they have absorbed just the worst vitriolic, hateful anti-Semitic material and they don't even think about how divorced that is from reality. But yeah, I'm talking about the Allen, Texas shooter. It was interesting because I, I know you wrote some in there about the right wing sort of adoration and almost deification of someone like Pinochet. And we've talked about Rhodesia and how that is a lost cause for these people. But I don't know that we've actually touched on on Pinochet and could you maybe just briefly just talk about why he's kind of viewed as a hero among the right? Yeah. So Pinochet, with the help of the CIA, deposed the and killed Salvador Allende, who was the kind of socialist president. Uh, I may be messing up a little bit of terminology. It's been a minute since my Latin American politics class in, in college, but 
But basically, you know, and, and for I think 16 or 17 years, really just reigned brutally over Chile, was infamous for airdropping people, dissidents of all stripes and political affiliations um, out of helicopters. And finally, stepped down, I believe, after a plebiscite. But he has really become a a folk hero on the right. You know, the Alan Shooter wore a right-wing death squad patch, um, which is a kind of phrase that's become synonymous with Pinochet in particular. It's something that, you know, we see the Proud Boys wearing frequently. There was, I think in 2020, the a, a group called Right Wing Death Squad that was plotting to kill, I believe, Gretchen Whitmire. Um but, you know, it's a, it is a phrase that has become just synonymous with these groups on the right, you know, both both the ultra violent and, and openly violent aspects of the right, but also these groups that like try to pretend that they would only exercise violence if violence was exercised against them, you know. Um, and I think that the, the kind of, as you said, the, the deification of Pinochet is, is uh, another one of these things that. If you're not paying attention to, you don't understand how that can be seen as a great measure of just how normalized violence has become. But like the Proud Boys are selling T-shirts with backs that say make communists afraid of rotary aircraft again and depictions of people being airdropped out of out of helicopters. So to say it's normalized, I think, would be an understatement. So, yeah. And you've got a number of photos. Any Google search will bring this up of Proud Boys wearing T-shirts that say Pinochet did nothing wrong. You know, they're very much into that imagery. And as we are seeing, these are groups that did this sort of ha-ha. We're not really as extreme as all of that. We're just, you know, Western chauvinists. We're just a men's drinking club. And a couple of those guys are looking at 33 years in federal prison now for their roles in January 6th. So it's become sort of another pipeline for them to move people farther and farther over to the explicitly white supremacist end of the spectrum. And one of the things that you've written about as well is how Texas led the nation in white supremacist incidents in 2022, according to the ADL. And we're personally really not all that surprised about this, considering the fact, as you know, that neo-Nazi group Patriot Front is based in Texas. And Patriot Front was responsible for roughly 80% of all white supremacist propaganda in the U.S. last year. Have you actually run into these guys? Have you had any run-ins with them? I have not. I mean, as far as I know, I have not personally run into them. Um, They did, you know, march down downtown Austin, I think, you know, over probably last month. And and I also when when Trump was in Waco, which is a, a whole other thing we should talk about, oh, um, yes. they they uh, were flyering all the cars. I think that they mistook the press parking lot for some of the Trump supporter parking lots. So all the press got back from the conference or from the rally with Patriot Front um, <laughs> propaganda on their windshields, which I thought was kind of interesting. You know, and, and it's interesting too to see the kind of propaganda that they were using at that event, which was very like no more foreign wars, like like not explicitly the type of blood and soil stuff that they talk about privately, just kind of tampering it down in ways that kind of played off of, you know, I guess some in MAGA world's opposition to like the Ukraine war and our involvement in it and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, they've been, they, they and other and others, um, what's it called? The uh, Groiver League or whatever. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I can't remember their name or maybe I just don't want to say it. Um, <laughs> they've been active in Houston in particular. Um, again, one of the most diverse cities in the, in the nation, if not the, and like, they've been very active there, uh, pep, you know, papering neighborhoods, a lot of black and Jewish neighborhoods. 
it, it sure seems like they are trying to uh again just raise the temperature and maybe you know if, if they can play off any existing racial animus that exists in places like that they're going to use those opportunities right the, a lot of those groups that are either based in texas or very well connected here and so it's not surprising at all that this is kind of their ground zero for raising the temperature and 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 increasingly normalizing hate speech especially given that there seems to be in some corners of the state a kind of hands-off to that uh, approach to that. So so what you're saying is that Dan Bongino and hundreds of the other right-wing influencers are all incorrect when they're saying these guys are all feds? <laughs> uh, I would say probably yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're not literally marching in the streets and then straight to the FBI headquarters. I think we can pretty well rule that out. But if they are feds, they're pretty bad feds. Myth busted. I think guys like Bongino and, and the more MAGA friendly influencers want to have that distance. And they need that distance partly because Patriot Front are piggybacking on the narratives that are so popular on the mainstream right. It is anti-LGBTQ. It is their concern about grooming and child trafficking. And so much of it is they're trying to present themselves as kind of normal. And, and well, these guys just have a different take on it. Let's go check out their website. And they are just obsessed with the aesthetic and, and they're pretty good at it, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, it, I talked about it in, a different but similar context with you know the way that these far right groups in Texas and I mean like the like like politically far like not explicitly white supremacist or anything like that I mean like the Tim Dunn groups like their whole point has been like we're just going to pull from the right pull from the right pull from the right and that has kind of been the strategy of a lot of these groups I mean look at the way that Nick Fuentes and the Groypers came up which is just going mm-hmm. to TPUSA meetings and and getting to a mic and saying some real you know just just trying to get charlie kirk and others to like engage with them on talking about you know closing the border and all this type of other stuff that like if if you can pull one or two people from that room to to kind of go to your website and maybe engage with your telegram or whatever like that's a success for them and there's been a very strategic incremental approach to normalizing a lot of this stuff and i think that it's it's uh you're seeing it both you know from from a variety of groups from across the, you know, further right part of the political spectrum. So, yeah, well, and it, and it is interesting because you, you kind of want to say that they've even managed to pull Charlie Kirk himself further right, because even this week, Matt Walsh made a particularly inflammatory statement, as he likes to do, saying that that Mexicans can't be white and they can't be American because because they we can't mix with them essentially and charlie kirk said oh yeah he's absolutely right and it's just it's full-on white nationalism and he's Mm -hmm. just out there repeating it and even a couple years ago he wouldn't have done that but the overton window like you said it it is still shifting yeah i mean look at richard hanania you know look at all these guys who who they are saying things on social media these days that five six seven years ago would have at least gotten them a stern talking to at work um, and now <laughs> doesn't seem to necessarily be affecting their standing in those circles until some you know somebody does a, a whole takeout on how they are they were quiet eugenicists for 10 years before but yeah. well you've even you've got um nate hotchman who was a member of the desantis campaign he retweets and was 
found to have been part of the creation of this video that featured a Sonnenrad and the account that he had retweeted also had other fascist imagery and he gets fired by the DeSantis campaign. And honestly, within a few weeks, he's getting published at The Spectator at The Telegraph. It's like nothing happened. He was explicitly sharing Nazi imagery and there's just a shrug. Take it, take a couple weeks off and you're good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, and the the uh, Venn diagram between some of these kind of influencer circles that, you know, some of them, I don't want to say all of them and, and none of the ones that are mentioned in my story, I should say that. But, you know, some of them are certainly engaging with with Nick Fuentes content. Oh, yeah. um, and like I was saying, you know, you're definitely seeing a lot of this stuff jump between communities that even three or four years ago, it feels like it was more confined to explicitly what we would have called the alt-right at the time or something like that. Right. And again, it's a testament to how well they've normalized it. So so you wrote a piece in February titled How Texas Activists Turned Drag Events into Fodder for Outrage. And you talked about how the people who showed up to these events were falsely framing them as being about grooming children. And that's part of a pattern that we've seen all over the country. Why do you think the right wing is so insistent on continuing with these anti-trans attacks, even when it's leading, as we've seen, to poor political outcomes for them? I don't want to try to ascribe motivations, but what I can tell you is that, you know, the uh, that story, actually, the way the reason it kicked off is because I was at an event in Dallas that was being protested by one of these groups, which is also, you know, closely aligned with Tim Dunn and Ferris Wilkes, the guys who keep coming up in this conversation, including, you know, Kelly Niedert, who is the leader of Protect Texas Kids. Her um, brother, Jake, her twin brother, Jake, is actually the legislative director for one of the uh, best funded Dunn candidates or Dunn lawmakers in the legislature. Jake Niedert has also posted about wanting to see people who take kids to drag shows publicly executed. So like when we talk about the normalization of, of violent rhetoric, like this is part and parcel but yeah, I mean, that that story actually was kind of kickstarted by me being at this Dallas event where I was talking to some groups that were just, you know, you know, American Nationalist Initiative groups that are openly like self-described fascists aligned with these groups that, you know, protect, call themselves protect Texas kids and stuff like that. And just talking to them and was like, yeah, so if there were no kids here, would you guys still be here? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. You know, they think we think that they're nesting evil inside. And the event that I was at, the only reason there were even kids there, because protect Texas kid kids had like labeled it incorrectly that it was all ages because it didn't explicitly ban children. The only kid that was inside was there because his mom was friends with the drag performers. And she was like, well, you're not going to tell me what I can and can't do with my kids. So I'm going to go in, in an act of protest. And like, they've really done a good job of turning events that have been going on for decades <laughs> into epicenters for like the culture war oftentimes under the guise of wanting to protect kids when there aren't even kids inside, or the only reason there are kids inside is because they are outside. So. So you mentioned earlier as well, that Trump held a rally earlier this year in Waco and Waco, as we've talked about a few times on this program as well, is a place that has great significance for the right due to the events that took place with the Branch Davidians there and the FBI raid. And it seemed like Trump was really out there trying to take that imagery of that raid and those deaths and turn it into another they're after me the same way kind of kind of narrative. What did you get out of that when you saw he was coming and he was going to be doing that particular that particular rally? Yeah, I mean so 
it's not just that he was rallying in Waco. He was rallying in almost smack dab in the middle of the 30th anniversary of the Branch Davidian standoff. And also as news was kind of coming out about his potential arrest for his first indictment. So at the rally, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick came up and said he was like, you know, pushing back against the media narrative or whatever, that this was intentional, a kind of dog whistle to extremist groups. He was like, no, I was the one who planned it. Um, regardless of who planned the rally, I talked to the leader of the Branch Davidians on that day. And you know who what he said? He was like, yes, absolutely. He's sending a message to us. He sees in himself the exact same struggle that we went, you know, of, of government right. overreach that that killed the Branch Davidians. I mean, this is a guy telling me this in the chapel at the site of the Waco siege that was built by Alex Jones. <laughs> like the through line of, of Waco and, and before that Ruby Ridge to current day, I think really cannot be overstated. And whether or not it was intentional, um, you know, the, their location and timing of that event, I don't know, but I can only say that the people who were there for that event and have continued to mobilize around that event and see themselves in that event certainly saw it as a call out to them. So, yeah, we can't say for certain we don't have an email. We don't have a, a voicemail explicitly saying it was intentional and all that. But as someone who follows these these far right figures and knows how much they talk about this and and how often it comes up in the rhetoric and how much they've tied it to Trump's attacks on the deep state and how they're out to get him and cabal and the swamp and all it's all wrapped up in the same messaging and yeah maybe Trump himself didn't come up with it but even if it was somehow a coincidence it was a damn convenient one for him and, and, you know, at that rally, too, that was where he really, I don't know if he's been saying it as much since, but, you know, our headline coming out of that was the quote, you know, I am your retribution. And that that rally was, uh, you know, he had the January 6th choir going. He had uh, there were a number of things in there where it was like, whoa, like he is he's really leaning in on this on this. You know, I am I am your vengeance and they're coming after me because they can't go after you narrative. And I think that that really did, you know. Coupled that with a lot of the religious imagery as a former religion reporter, like the 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 amount of stuff that was going on in the crowd there that day was, you know, kind of fascinating. You know, there has been a really a a, a rallying around religious symbolism um, in the last few years um, and applying it to Trump's cause, um, including the, the leader of the Branch Davidians. You know, him and I talked for a while. And he was saying, you know, you know, Trump is a Cyrus figure this, you know, in the same way that David Koresh was a Cyrus figure, you know, this person who may not be perfect, but is used by God to to deliver holiness to the world. And so they do see Trump and in, in very, I don't want to say as a messiah, but certainly as someone with parallels to people that they consider prophets and 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 right. Well, they've certainly gotten past the point of caring about the ways he may be inadequate or he's not the right messenger. He's had, you know, he's been married too many times. He's been divorced. He's been accused of rape. All the things that initially 2016 people said, well, how, how can you square these things? Well, they're past caring. Whatever reservation they had are, are gone and imperfect though he may be, he is their vessel. Yeah, I mean, I think, and again, I think that, you know, what I, what I said earlier about this narrative about, they're going after me because they can't go after you is really such a good lens through which to view this. The MAGA base definitely sees themselves in him and they see the quote unquote deep state attack on him as a stand in for, you know, it, again, 
the, the the common refrain after you know his indictments has been if they can go after him who can't they go after and and i think that that is really emblematic of their you know relationship with you know how they view him um in this moment in political life and also what they believe are their political enemies so so what are you going to be on the lookout for the closer we get to the 2024 elections <sighs> man i'm trying to get through the paxton thing first because uh, that starts <laughs> september 5th but i think you know, again, maybe it's just because I am a former religion reporter, but I think that one of the we're starting to see more of it, you know, a lot more of it, which I think is good. But I, you know, for years, I think that people were missing the kind of Christian dominionist, Christian nationalist piece of all this, because it does tie into this broader, you know, grievance politics and and the way, as I was saying, the way that they kind of see Trump as a stand in for all of these different things. And so, and again, again, the way that, you know, that type of Christian nationalist rhetoric has been deployed to, you know, it's so malleable in so many different ways. So I'm going to be paying attention to that. I think it's hard to see a world in which Donald Trump isn't the nominee. And it's hard to see a world in which things don't get more tense in America as, you know, legal troubles continue while all that happens. So, um, you know, I think it's going to, it's going to be a eventful year and a half or so, so. Robert, we've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for coming on, talking to us today. Can you tell people where they can find you online and where they can read more of your excellent reporting? Yeah, you can uh, find me at texastribune.org. We are a free news site, um, so donor-funded nonprofits that rules and uh, no paywalls. Um, you also will sometimes see some of our stuff. We we are pretty much allow anyone to republish our stuff. Um, so that's cool. And then you can find me on social media at Robert D-O-W-N-E-N uh, underscore. So. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been great. We've learned a lot talking to you about this. Um, yeah, we've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have. And uh, I'm impressed that you remember that much of your Paxton reporting because it is uh, it is quite extensive. Yeah. Oh, oh, I, I'm I'm nothing compared to the encyclopedic knowledge uh, that some of the people on the Texas Tribune staff has. So I would also encourage people, you know, that trial happened starts September 5th and uh, it is going to be fascinating few weeks that has a lot of ramifications for Texas and national politics. So uh, definitely check out our coverage of that because we, we are gearing up for it. So, well, excellent. Thank you very much, Robert. We appreciate your time. Thanks. Take care. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Take care. Thanks for listening to the did nothing wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can find us on the web at did nothing wrong Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word for, and the letter M, all one word, and Grizza BJJ, G-R-Z-A-B-J-J, as well as DNW Pod. We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.